You are listening to Turning Earth on Dublin Digital Radio. The Wild Irish, have you heard the expression the Wild Irish? Yeah. That was the Elizabethan and Cromwellian expression. Do you know the roots of the word wild? Willed, self-willed. W-I-L-L-D was the original word for wild. It was because we were so self-willed. We rejected the benefits of the crown. Mm. And the Brits could not grasp what is going on here. In this episode, we will explore the common roots of homelessness and deforestation. The link might not appear obvious at first, but they share a common recent ancestor, privatisation. Privatisation itself is the descendant of enclosure. No matter where you are in the world, the history of land ownership is a violent one. As our species made the transition in much of the world from nomadic pastoralists and hunters to settled agriculturalists, the concept of land ownership began to develop. Instead of seeing ourselves as animals embedded dynamically in our habitats, gradually humans began to see ourselves as separate entities and as having dominion over land. Issues of descendants and inheritance came into being. War over territory has been a common theme throughout this history. As societies developed and grew more complex, powerful families and individuals were able to coerce and coordinate larger and larger bodies of people to take over land and exploit it to their own ends. Eventually, this developed into the feudal monarchies and then into nation-states. Starting in the early 1600s, the British state began introducing acts of enclosure, which took the last of the unowned land, the commons, into private ownership. Land that was once available to the common people to make their living from was now privately owned and controlled. This was happening at the same time that they began the plantation of Ireland, carving up pieces of the island among their lords and barons. Ireland had been under the control of the Gaelic clans, a tribal system, with the country divided up into different tuiha. While far from egalitarian, this kinship structure ensured that everyone had the means to make their living from the land. This was replaced by the plantation system, and gradually the system of private ownership became generalised. The liberal capitalist revolutions of the 1700s deposed monarchies in Western Europe and expanded the pool of owners to include the merchant classes, the fathers of modern capitalism. Though their makeup has changed and developed, that system of ownership has changed little to the modern day. So how did we get from living in the woods to treating trees like they're flowers in a flower bed? Why is land seen as something to be profited from, rather than our commonly held birthright? This episode will begin exploring these questions. I feel that, and it's, it's the same with a lot of rural communities, we are under constant attack, constant attack. Like at the moment in this area, quite a depopulated area, North Leitrim, we have Love Leitrim, which is an anti-fracking group, Save Thua, which is, uh, and other groups in the area against these ginormous turbines. We have Save Leitrim, which is anti-monoculture forestry. And now we have Treasure Leitrim, which is a group in opposition to the mining exploration licenses. So we all have jobs, we all have families, we all have other things we'd much prefer to be at. I mean, we are people who give off our time on a voluntary basis. Why can't we put that to, to use in something more positive than battling what the government is doing wrong? Battling against big business, battling against bad or no policy, and very short-sighted. Absolutely, we have to move away from fossil fuels, but not at the expense of something else. There's no point 
in replacing one wrong with another wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's just not thought out and it's not sustainable. That was Newell McNulty, who you heard from in the previous episode, discussing the planned wind farm near her home. If the needs of the people are so contradicted by the plans of the state, there will always be a need for groups like those she listed. As long as people who are embedded in their locality lack meaningful access to the decision-making processes, these struggles will manifest. How do we give control of the land back to the people? How do we lose it in the first place? Did we ever have it? Why do we see nature as a resource, rather than seeing it as our home? When you have a drive to plant by the Green Party and by you know, the climate pressures, by biodiversity change, to plant, 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 then you need to look at what you're actually planting. You can't just say, well, look at timber, timber, timber. We have to put in trees that we won't take out in 20, 30, 40. You know, that you need to be left there for hundreds of years um, because the ash trees are all dying off. You know, a lot of the timber that was planted here was planted on the estates by the, the estate owners, the landlords. They're very large trees now and a lot of them are coming down. There's no real history in Ireland of planting trees. There was, like trees were very, very important in the Celtic area. And there, were, there was spirituality associated with them and the different types of trees. There was medicines. And like there are some very good people in Ireland that are still retain that connection to trees and to the, the, the various elements of that Celtic heritage. But largely that's gone and replaced by the industry view. And I suppose largely because the country was completely denuded of trees. You know, there's a history to everything as well. And when you hear... We listen to people saying, well, sure, there's so little trees in Ireland. There is a history and there's a reason why that happened. And then the plantations moved so many people. Like Leitrim had a hundred, and I think it was in 1826, this county had, I think it was 155,000 people living in it. The recent, the recent census has 32, and that's a 9% increase on the last census. And there's been increase here since 1996, but that's a huge difference. And those people were on the mountains, they were everywhere. They were subsistence, they were impoverished, they were using the timber for heat and for the buildings because there were mud huts and they were built with timber and closed in with the mud. That heritage is gone because they declined. So there's a long history to what happened here. And it was outside forces that time, but it's still outside forces because we have Canadian pension funds, we have Scandinavian uh, companies. We have large companies in Dublin 4 which addresses, some of them are just shelves with addresses, mm. all owning the land now and mad for more in, in Leitrim. We're moving the ownership of the land out of the ownership of local people, of local families, yeah, yeah. and into what are effectively portfolios mm. operated by you know, corporate entities. You heard Brian Smith again there talking about the history of deforestation in Ireland and how it led us to our current situation. I'll send you back to Ted now in the Gaera, who'll take us deeper into the history of land exploitation here in Ireland. Do you have any sense then of why the current uh, kind of mainstream model for forestry production is what it is, like the, the quilcher model, the monocrop, completely fell the forest, take it all and then replant? It seems like totally at odds with how the the thing functions? Well, now that's a very good question. The British, the Imperial Government in, 18, in 1898 gave autonomous local authority to Ireland in 1898. 
Gladstone used to call it killing home rule with kindness. Ted hinted at this in the last episode when he talked about the later policy enacted by the Free State Government of killing republicanism with kindness. The Land Commission carving up all the states to quieten the people. The seeds of that process began here. In 1906, Westminster gave us an indigenous autonomous forestry on condition, the commercial model. We just, after independence, we never broke. We, we perfect the monoculture model. But it's also a post-colonial thing. There's a quick return, a quick kill after 25, 30 years. Scots pine is a 70-year, the native semi-hardwood Scots pine, 70-year. Oak, 120. See what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a post-colonial thing, I believe. But we will come out of that because it is the single largest impact in, in the Republic. Quilcha is the largest landowner. And the impact is absolutely immense. Yeah, yeah. But now with pension funds, Quilch is very implicated in a lot of different trusts and pension funds. And um, I understand we actually export some of our skills and expertise in monoculture forestry. I think that um, we need to, I mean, IKEA, a Swedish company, they simply began to look again at their native birch IKEA works with birch timber. The global home of birch is Ireland. It's the oceanic place. Birch love it here. Now IKEA is in, I understand every country in the world there's IKEA furniture, all birch. That could have been us. Um, but we haven't done the research on birch. Alder is a fine timber, beautiful timber. The sweat lodges of Norway, I have never been in them, but I've read of them and I've met people who've been in the sweat lodges. They're panelled in alder. Yeah, yeah. Just we never developed uh, industries other than really construction and I Irish softwood, Sitka, and Lodgepole and Larch. They grow too fast. It's too oceanic here. I've heard the idea expressed a few times, and you, you refer, referred to us earlier as a, a forest people or a forest people without a forest. Mm -hmm. The idea that everything was kind of grand until the British started harvesting trees at a, at a rate of knots and taking them out of the country and that. The Neolithics didn't get very far. They were the first farmers. There was no iron. That bronze, not even sure if bronze, copper and tin had been discovered. They were ploughing with wooden pencil type ploughs. I say the the beginning of deforestation begins in the, with the early church. Centres had to be built, you know, s villages and towns and cities grew up, the f our first cities grew up around monasteries. I'm not blaming the Christians. I'm saying that a society organised on quite a vast scale, then extractive mining or extractive clear felling was organised on a vast scale. Ted said he doesn't blame the Christians. Well, neither do I. But I do think it's important to point out that it isn't just the construction of monasteries, the organisation of large-scale society, or the advancements in agriculture they brought that began the deforestation. From my perspective, the worldview that most of us have in modern times, that we are separate from nature, which in a lot of ways we are, you know, we live cut off from natural processes. They're made invisible to us by much of our human infrastructure. But we're not really separate. We still eat and defecate, we are born and we die. So the idea that we're separate, I believe, has its roots in the Christian worldview. Because that worldview tells us that humans are made in God's image 
and that the earth is there for us to use. Of course, not all Christians think about the world in these terms, but this idea is at the core of Christian teaching, and it has informed all of the ruling ideologies that have been influenced by it since the Roman Emperor Constantine converted around 1800 years ago, and started spreading the ideology throughout Europe. That rigid hierarchy, with man at the top and all other species at the bottom, is behind a lot of this short-sighted thinking, I believe. Ted rightly points out that this isn't the only way. We can have a much more diverse and holistic approach to forestry. He used the example of IKEA, which to me wouldn't be a model to imitate, but I like what Ted is getting at. Moving away from monocrop forestry doesn't mean moving away from production completely. We can produce timber, a variety of timber, in healthier, more holistic ways, which could support indigenous production and employment. But I'd say the only way this could be done in a way that doesn't repeat the mistakes of the past is if it is planned out with an understanding that nobody owns the land. We're merely stewards, mining it for the next generation. The opposite is happening now. Supply lines are breaking down as society goes into reverse. And what had become developed into complex organisation seems to be becoming uncomplex. It's getting too hot. And wars, you know, Odessa is a good example. They can't get the wheat to Mother Africa, blah, blah. This is only the beginning of something else. We're going to kill each other for water and air and, and other resources. I think that's what I see. That's what I, I can't help. I, I see unless that man is rapidly flung away into, by a long way into evolution that we evolve really fast, but we can't do that. Unless some angel comes and whispers in our ear and we wake up enlightened, that's not going to happen. I don't think it can happen. But in any event, the first Christians and the organizations that came with, with the church and remember, as the church grew, Ireland became what we call monastic. I mean, by the time the Cistercians came in 1090, 1152, the Cistercians arrived. They were farming on a scale really unknown to us even still. They had vast farming systems. They had about 50 monasteries in Ireland. And some of them you can still work out they drained and they worked huge areas of land. They grew fruit. Then there was the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Augustinians, the Benedictines. Look at what Benedictine abbeys are still in Ireland. They have vast areas of land up around Glenstall, up in County Limerick, or Ross Grey, the Cistercians in Ross Grey. To grow food and organise at that scale had to be seriously cleared. But to build, you needed timber, you just scaffold, floor. But then the Normans began to arrive. They arrived in really 1169, but, they, but King Henry arrived in 1172 in Waterford. And he began to divvy out to his barons. He had 159 barons with him from the time of William the Conqueror, 1066. He had to pay, the, it was payback time. He had to give bits of Ireland to his barons. And they were not going to live flush to a forest where the indigenous Irish were, they were forest dwellers right back. There were still forest dwellers in the forest. They, you couldn't live near the forest, you didn't know where they were coming from. Now we speed forward and we have Queen Mary's plantation of Leash and Offaly. And the records are there that woodland had to be cleared. The English wouldn't come and be planted unless they were able to see out their window to see who is coming at them. And that was Mary. Then her 
Then I think it was her half-sister Elizabeth. Elizabeth began on a serious plantation of Munster. And we know that there was very profound deforestation going on by Mr. White, who became, whose progeny became the first arrows of Bantry in, 17, uh, in the 1790s. And Richard Boyle, who became the first Earl of Cork. A very good document penned by Dr. Eileen McCracken, published in 54. She tracks those families that made a living from smelting. You're going to Tullow the next day or two. Tullow. Tullow, yeah. Boyle cleared the forests of Octi. You'll be near the forest of Octi at Tullow. Mm. Remember, Boyle, who lived in Lismore Castle, was granted by Queen Elizabeth the rights to escheat, the right to inspect titles and forfeit titles if you weren't loyal or if you didn't have the right, the right documents. Mm. He escheated the whole of Ireland. I think in year one he had 40,000 acres, but he now began smelting and iron extracting in the Octi Mountains. But to make iron, do you understand, you must cut all the oak down. Do you know why? You need the heat of oak. Is a young oak or a big old oak hotter? Which is hotter in the furnace? Young oak of 25 years of age. Billions of those came down to make iron. Iron was needed in England. Why? They had already planned the invasion of America. They needed hoops and barrels and a navy of oak tied together by, by bands of iron. They needed iron. Iron was important. So Boyle and White, White of Bantry House, his progeny, as I say, were the first earls of Bantry. There were only four earls. Their wealth, their enormous wealth was from iron smelting. There can be no oak left. In England, they coppiced the oak feeding the smelter. Coppicing, which Ted will speak more about in later episodes, is an old method of woodland management. It involves cutting trees down to the stump to allow new shoots to form. Some species of trees, such as the hazel, actually live longer if they are coppiced. It is the antithesis of the modern method of clear felling, where the entire tree is removed, uprooted and the soil destroyed. Coppicing only happened in the Coolatin Fitzwilliam estate in Wicklow that I'm aware of. That was the only working coppice system. So then the Elizabethans cleared the land. At that stage, Elizabeth directed her armies in Ireland, mainly Blennerhazard, I'm remembering. Blennerhazard was granted Tralee and all of that area of Ballyseedy. And uh, Blennerhazard was uh, directed by the Crown no more cutting of trees. The Queen doesn't want any more cutting. And Blenner Hazard writes back and said, well, how, how are we to colonize an island if we, if we can't? The rebels are living in the forest. We need to get rid of the rebels. To get rid of the rebels, we need to get rid of the forest. So there was that, hello lads. Hiya. Hello dogs. Bless them. They're lovely. Thank you. Um, the next thing is, the Elizabethans are hardly gone. A lot of the land has been cleared. Remember, Britain is building a navy. They have their eyes now on India. That means a lot of oak to build the ships. The Elizabethans are out the door. Things are just settling. Cromwell arrives in 1649. The place is on fire. The place is scorched. 
Mountjoy, the general Mountjoy, Elizabeth's general, in 1600, used the burning of forests and of, and of crops to starve communities and burn forests out to give the woodkern, was the name of the rebel Irish, they were woodkern. The word kern comes from Carnock. Carnock is a, an infantry or foot soldier. The Irish were defeated at Kinsale and now there were up to 20,000 wood kerns hiding in the forest. And Blennerhazard asked the Queen, and the Queen said no, and Blennerhazard went back and said, look, how are we going to colonise? Who will come and live with the forest next to them? And the wild Irish, have you heard the expression, the wild Irish? Yeah. That was the Elizabethan and Cromwellian expression. Do you know the word wild, the roots of the word wild? Willed, self-willed. W-I-L-L-D was the original word for wild. It was because we were so self-willed. We could not and rejected the benefits of the crown. We rejected the benefits of the crown. And the Brits could not grasp what is going on here. Then the Treaty of Limerick, the wars of the Boyne and Limerick, they were religious wars. Cromwell declared a holy war on Ireland. He was, he was now what we would call a fundamentalist Christian. Mm. He was persecuting the Anglicans. We say in Irish, Ither do shinigia, Augustalanuna, O Lord, protect us from your devotees. He came with a crucifix in a holy war. William was milder, although he also was a class of a Dutch fundamentalist, mm. more Calvinistic really than Cromwell was. Um, there are subtle differences. But then the Williamites, Williamites seized all the old Irish aristocratic estates from the Norman period and settled his people in 1691 up to, and then the penal laws of 1704, 1705. And then no indigenous Irish could own land or live anywhere or etc. And it just went downhill. But 1700 is considered, is now accepted as the, what's called the, the afforestation period, mm. the planting of what we know now, these old, old trees in the, in the domains and private pleasure gardens of Ireland, they're now like full-blown roses with their petals falling. They date from around 1700. Nice. Uh, and so the, forest, the afforestation period is officially accepted as beginning in 1700. Mm. And from then on, uh, the Williamites and the Cromwellians that had been granted land because Cromwell couldn't pay his army. He gave away um, 11 million acres of Ireland to satisfy the bankers that funded his holy war in Ireland. So a lot of planting begins to happen. Then there is an early 1715, 1745 Acts of Parliament to encourage more planting. Uh, you may register what you plant and claim ownership of the timber. If you're a tenant and have to leave or you're evicted or your lease expires and your landlord won't renew, you could claim the right of the timber. Right. Landlords did not register, they didn't have to. They owned their estates, their, their domains. But if you were a tenant farmer, a rentier we say, in the, over, in the outlying estate, you could register at no cost put your name into court, it was summarily registered. The landlord didn't even have to know 
But if you were evicted or something went wrong on your leaving or your children's leaving or your grandchildren, they had a right to go to the Lord and say, I'm leaving you 300 cubic meter of oak and 100 cubic meter of ash. You'll have to, you'll have to settle with that. I'm, I'm giving you a, a resource that I husbanded, that I grew and looked after. So that got a lot of planting going. And then of course the hedgerows of 1667, the cow act, the cattle act of 1667, that laid down that landowners outside domains, the outlying farms that made up the estates. Do you understand I mean, the difference between an estate and a domain? No, actually. The domain is the walled private pleasure house of the Lord. The estate could be like Bantry House at 60,000 acres paying rent, but their domain was only about 400 acres. Domain comes from Latin, mensa, a table. Whatever is grown in the domain is put on the Lord's table. The, the idea being, you ate nothing, put nothing on your table that wasn't grown within the walled park. Why? The number of accidental deaths by poisoning of, of English lords is outrageous. <laughs> no, no, no. So the idea was, it was a propter decorum was the word. It's a Norman concept. If you're planted by the crown in Ireland, you behave as a, as a royal and noble English man. You practice hawking and falconry. You develop horses and dogs. You, in wall or in park, your domain, and you regulate, you keep Catholics and native and indigenous Irish out of the estate, but you bring in English loyalist or unionist farmers and you plant your estate. It could be 10, 5,000. The Fitzwilliams had 56,000 acres of South Wicklow. 56,000 acres. That, at the expense of the O'Toole's and the O'Burns, they came in, the Fitzwilliams. Before that, there was a, was a Staffordshire, Lord Stafford, I think his name was. He was a t not attorney, he was Viceroy or Lord Lieutenant. And we always say, Cromwell and Tom Stafford had one redeeming factor, their only redeeming factor. They hated everyone equally. They bullied Protestant, Loyalist, and Indigenous Native Catholic equally. So their only really redeeming aspect is just their hatred, their deep hatred, their vile hatred was, a, was, was egalitarian. <laughs> Ted just walked us through the history of two different kinds of plantation, the plantation of forests and military plantations. Throughout this history, we can see the roots of the modern socio-political system. People moved en masse, planted on other people's land, trees felled without care to supply the armies. This view of the natural world as a resource, replacing the view of the natural world as our home. This view has carried us right up to today. The disempowerment of local councils here in Ireland that I brought up in the last episode makes sense from the perspective of the ruling class when you look at it as part of a continuous process of disempowerment, control and manipulation. Democracy has always been delicate and it's taken away unless it's fought for and guarded. This series has been made possible partially through the financial support of Glushooks. Glushooks are an environmental and social justice organisation that give logistical, financial and educational support to various campaign groups. Glushooks helped me cover some of my costs like equipment and travel expenses and this series would likely not have happened without their support, so Mila Buikas to them.
Many hours of work have gone into this podcast and I'm trying to make the work financially sustainable. And that's only possible through listener support. So if you'd like to help keep this project going, please sign up at patreon.com forward slash turning earth. On Patreon, for five euros a month, you'll get access to the full interviews, to book reviews and historical, political and philosophical audiobooks that I'm going to start making in the next few weeks and more. For two euros fifty a month, you can get access to just the audiobooks. Now, I'll be starting with Labour and Irish History by James Connolly, releasing a chapter two or three times per month over the next year. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you use and review and recommend it to friends. This is independent media. It doesn't get heard unless you tell people about it, so please help spread the word. In the 1980s, the state was moving out of purchasing land. Up to that time, the state was buying land and planting it. And then Quilch was formed in 1988, that was two years later, and Quilch then took over the, the state property, or it was given over to them by the Minister of Finance, Minister for Agriculture, to make a profit for the state. Right. That's Quilch's remit since then. But up to that time, the state was planting land. Well, once land came back from the landlords and that, they were the Land Commission was dividing up farms and giving farmers and people back the land. Mm. Uh, and so some of that was being planted by the state, the Forestry Service. So in 1988, the, the state handed all that land to, to Quilcher. So Quilcher are a semi-state for-profit organisation that own 7% of the land in Ireland. Mm. And I think it's the same percentage in, in here in Leitrim. Mm. But their remit never changed from that time till now. So, you know, there's a lot of issues now that weren't pertinent in 1988, yeah. biodiversity, climate, yeah. uh, even community, social sustainability, economic activity in small towns and that. Privatisation is part of the ongoing centuries-long project of capitalist enclosure. Housing is now a commodity sold for profit. Land in general is a thing to be profited from, not a living, breathing ecosystem to be lived in. Along with this comes an attendant lack of respect for the needs of the land itself. You know, it, it's the entire balance, really. It's a balance of we as humans, how much we abuse the, the planet, use and abuse it, and I suppose over-intensification of farming and the problems with that in relation to pollution and loss of biodiversity. And it's almost as if, you know, we're, we're going like a lot of other countries, pumping the land, pumping the land, getting as much as you can out of it. But then you have dead soil and you have vegetables that have no food value in them really because the soil they're growing on is dead, they're just forced. And I think, you know, when you look at Monsanto and companies like this who are doing outdoor trails and genetically modified crops, if they're outdoor, there's no control, they're going, you know, they're going to affect crops, non-GMO crops. So, I mean, I think you can lose that clean green image very quickly. As Nuala said, modern agriculture, monocrop planting, whether it's trees or vegetables, is rapidly depleting the world's arable land. According to the UN, we have less than a century's worth of harvests left due to the loss of topsoil all over the world. This is tied directly to the industrialization of farming. Human labor has largely been replaced by finance. Local knowledge, grown from and adapted to the local habitat, has been replaced by specialized knowledge. Under capitalism, even thoughts and ideas become enclosed and privatised as intellectual property. This is one of the topics Fergal Anderson spoke to me about. We're still experimenting. Like, you know, like I said earlier, it's lifelong learning, the process. I mean, it's, it's incredibly complex, uh, soil, soil management, to do it right. 
Mm. Uh, and I think that's it's not something we should shy away from, which we should embrace it. And, 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 and I think the people best suited to, to actually understanding what is going on in, in their fields are farmers themselves. And that's part of what we're trying to do a little bit with the EIP that we're running now in Talaf Bio is to say, look, you know, the knowledge that used to exist about farming existed in farmers' heads in the community. Mm. And we've taken it out of farmers' heads and put it into specialised uh, locations in academia or in you know research institutes. They they've struggled to understand the complexity of of soil science, for example, soil biology, which is you know, and I, th I think the, the the people best suited to doing that are, are farmers because every field has its own uh, you know it could have a different soil type, it can react differently, and that gives you a huge amount of variables, which means that you know in, in a scientific approach. You know, can't really can't really take those into account unless it's going into very great detail. Whereas a farmer has access through kind of daily observation to the changes that are happening, and can kind of you know should be able to intuit from if, if the knowledge is put in their hands what the best course of action is to take. So like I mean, yeah. we're talking about a kind of reappraisal of how we manage knowledge in that sphere and and to try and look at ways of putting that knowledge you know putting re empowering farmers I suppose again and saying look think for yourself you possibly know the best answers to what needs to be done yeah. and uh yeah and, and back yourself and and, and your and, and obviously your peers because it's very important to exchange with other people around you and your neighbors and your and your and your peers to to understand better and you know that's that's all about building networks and that's you know that's that's where we would have gotten off a lot of our information starting off was just farm walks and uh visiting other farms and seeing how they're doing it and you never fail to learn something from that process but we also work on seed sovereignty we talk a lot about the seeds uh, seeds are one of the most kind of i say controlled but like they're a very concentrated industry and like i mean we were, we were at a farm walk yesterday and the the farmer there grows a lot of cereals malting barley and like the the barley that he has to grow for for the likes of guinness or for the companies that buy the barley uh for malting they also own the seed and they sell the seed. So they sell the seed uh, and they buy the seed, they buy the, the crop. So the farmer is just, you know, in that system is, is, mm. is, is very, it's almost powerless. He can't grow his own barley, can't grow another variety. He has to grow their variety for them to, and they'll buy that off them mm. at the price that they, they set. So like, you know, that's an example of the kind of control that exists yeah. in, the, in those systems. You know what I mean? Um, it's the same as the, the mining towns in the, in the States where the company owned the shop and the house and everything. It's, there you go. It's, 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 it, they, they're trying to close the economic loop for themselves. I mean, like, uh, for them, yeah, it makes financial sense. Uh, but for the farmer, not so much. And for, like, in terms of, as I said, public control of the food system, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster because the more that happens, the more that you know, we lose. Uh, you don't even find. You have to try and find a variety. You know that isn't owned by a company that you can sell, that you can mm. reproduce yourself in the farm, etc. Just like there is no democratic control over our food systems, we lack democratic control over housing. Food and housing, two basic necessities of life, are seen primarily as sources of profit. I'll take you out of the countryside and into the city now for a conversation with Ono Canavan. While the neglect of rural areas forces people to move to the cities, the city itself comes under more and more pressure. What little space there is left now comes at a premium. Housing is scarce, as are social and cultural spaces. Owen is an activist with People Before Profit and a musician. He took part in organising protests earlier this year to protect the Cobblestone, a pub in Smithfield, Dublin 7, and a vital centre for traditional music. Yeah, there's a lot of musicians living in, around kind of Dublin 7, 
and the cobblestone be really important to us. It's supposed to be kind of a, the main kind of meeting point, really, for for people, um, for putting on concerts, for you know people be doing lessons, you know, doing dancing, singing. You know, Tom was always great when whenever we we wanted to do fundraisers around things like for United Against Racism or and kind of things for direct provision or other other issues like that. I think we had a fundraiser for repeal at one point as well. So yeah, always kind of very open and encouraging to, to those kinds of things. The woman at the, one of the protests who spoke about how they had wanted to put on a traveller singing session and they'd been refused from nine different venues and then welcomed in by the cobblestone, you know. Uh, so yeah, it was that kind of place it was just it's not just a bar like it's yeah, a proper cultural exactly, and social kind of hub. Of and what what was the what was the issue there with whoever owns the building wanted to sell it to build a hotel, was that it? Yeah, so so the Mulligan family they own the the bar license but not the building itself and uh the developer basically wanted to build a nine-story hotel uh, on top of it, and uh, yeah, so people were kind of initially pretty sh- shocked by it, but uh, then started kind of getting organised on it. And I remember the name of that campaign was Dublin is Dying, yeah. which is a, a grim but fairly, I suppose, how do you feel about that statement in yeah. general? Do you think that's... Well, <laughs> it's funny because there was two kind of main... Two slogans that were kind of going around. Uh, I I think it was John Flynn came up with Dublin is dying, and we were kind of calling that first protest. And and then you know Dublin's not dead yet was bandied about as well. And I think there's a bit of there's a bit of both going on. I think there's a there's yeah it's not it's not all doom and gloom like there's there's a resistance to these things happening as well. Like you know, and uh, I think that was. Yeah, with the with those first that first protest, there was about two thousand people at it, and it was coming out of COVID, so there hadn't been any major kind of mobilizations. So, but I think what it was was a combination really of the people around the pub, obviously, you know, for whom the pub was really important, obviously local people as well, uh, and then I think there was just a, a big kind of section of people who who supported it as well, who maybe saw it as a well, I think everybody really saw it as part of a wider kind of a problem and, and saw it as a I suppose just the latest thing but it was something that people were, were, were fighting on and saying that kind of enough was enough I suppose yeah that makes sense it was like the, it's, 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 it was one of the worst examples of something that's just been happening and it was the same week they, that they the, they put in the planning permission the same week that the permission for the hotel in Merchant's Search was given so there was a big kind of Ferrari over that but it was too late it was already kind of granted or whatever but then this was this application went up that same week so there was a lot of kind of there was a lot of talk around hotels I suppose generally and things haven't really changed that much since then have they No I mean they've yeah it was obviously yeah it was rejected the campaign won there was about 700 uh, letters went into the city council there was a few more kind of Street mobilizations and that kind of thing, and it was beaten, and then the appeal lost as well. Um, so it's kind of as you were now. I don't know will there be another plan, or will the developer try and sell it, or what will happen? But um, for now, it's it's safe anyway. You know, it, it was nice to see that that win because it's yeah. I've, so many times we've you submit something to the thing just so, so that it's it's almost you're almost doing it just so that the dissent will be registered, and you yeah. don't really hope that yeah. it'll actually be effective but that was yeah. that, was, that was hugely effective yeah like yeah it was and and the way it was rejected as well was important because the like we were we were thinking that the best we'd get was because the plans were a mess anyway but would be we didn't think that they they'd get permission but would they would the door be kind of left open to an appeal or to something else you know um and one of the reasons they gave uh, which was kind of unprecedented really was the was the cultural importance of it so yeah i think i think it kind of 
it showed yeah you know, when you get people organize and when enough people kind of stand up and something it's not that you you'll always win but you have a, you definitely have a chance uh of of winning and pushing something back and then i think i think the energy of that then is something that you can build on as well like and uh, for for other things some of the people who would have been involved in that would be involved in other campaigns and other issues as well um i think it definitely plants seeds anyway and i see the same thing people are trying to do the same thing with the fibbers beer garden yeah um i don't see that having the same potential though because the, in that case the people who own the pub actually want that to happen <laughs> so yeah. like it's 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 the same it's the, i think the same group owns all those pubs and they're like they want to sell it to the holiday and so it's, okay. it hasn't got the same the same potential i think to rally people you know? it's a, yeah like it's it is interesting with that kind of thing where like you've got venues and places that are obviously they're kind of like the people's venues or the mm. people's places to go or whatever but they're also not they're not yeah. really owned by yeah. the people that frequent them and obviously that it's a, a problem like that we don't yeah, have yeah. actually actually publicly owned you know yeah cultural spaces like that well not enough of them anyway you know it's 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 part of that broader problem that's is well it's, it's all over the world i suppose uh, and it's all over the country but it's particularly obvious and uh, like harsh in dublin just that the tightness of space and the like the fact that everything Everything is commodified, our houses and our cultural yeah. spaces, our homes. Yeah. So it's part of that broader pattern. That was one of the main kind of campaign slogans as well, was kind of homes, not hotels, and culture, not vultures, you know, yeah, tying yeah, yeah. all the, the things together because, um, yeah, like a lot of the people there would have been, definitely the vast majority of the young people there anyway would have been renters and that kind of thing. People are, you know, and it's like, even since then, in terms of housing, things have gotten an awful lot worse. Like, yeah. you know, I constantly know people are looking for somewhere. It's not even that finding somewhere that's remotely affordable is finding a room at all. At all you know? yeah. yeah, I've been saying for the last two years it can't get any better, any worse than it is now. It's, yeah, and it actually just it actually does keep has, getting yeah. worse. Like. It's, it's incredible. Even as a, like, for the government now, like, uh, for, you know, a state that's, you know, built on a tax haven model and attracting kind of foreign direct investment and bringing in workers and so on. Whether it's tech workers or whether it's working in the service industry and that kind of thing, it's become a serious problem for themselves, for their own model of running things. Because I mean, I saw the French government there warning French people uh, not to come to Ireland unless they have accommodation. You right. Know? Um, yeah. Which is, I mean, probably good advice, like, but like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's grim, like, yeah. It's also opening up space now for for the right. I think with the war in Ukraine and uh, lots of Ukrainian refugees coming in, um, people are start, well. There's obviously the the right are trying to blame it on on refugees and and then the government creates more space for that as well. By you know like even just in the last little while, um, you know saying that they're they're saying that they won't have anywhere for any more refugees. Um, and that's and Eamon Ryan going on to say like people who are living in direct provision are going to have to. Uh, you know, if they're working, they're going to have to pay rent. Like, you know, it's like really rotten stuff. Um, but uh, I think that all creates space then to the right of them for, you know, for people, for, for you know, more kind of uh, dangerous kind of forces to, to say, keep them all out and, you know, how's the Irish first or whatever, the, you know, the stuff they come out with. But it's it's fundamentally based. <laughs> like, there's, there's still, what is it, last sentence, about 166,000 empty vacant properties, yeah. you know, they haven't made any serious moves. You know, the the war has been on since March and they haven't made any serious moves on those uh, empty properties since since it started, like, you know. Uh, do, like, that, do, 
the situation in Ukraine is just gets used as it can be used as an excuse for that. It makes me think of the when the Revolutionary Workers Union took over that building yeah. on, on the keys. It was yes. like, oh, we were going to use that for Ukraine. We were going to use it for Ukraine. Bastards. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, and, and it's so cynical. I don't think there's any any Ukrainians no, it's there now. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And there was no, there was no. I noticed this happening a lot when buildings get squad, uh, for for political purposes, yeah. like as a campaign thing. The language in the media is always, uh, it, no further work can be done or work has been prevented, and it's always in buildings where there's no sign of any there's work been having no been done on it. Because it was the same there, and when they took over the other place down at, uh, down near Houston Station, loads of the articles had that same language. Oh, you know, they've, they're preventing work they've, being done yeah. or work has been halted, and there was no. Working yeah. done at all up yeah. at that point, like yeah, it's and just to like make it because they've obviously staked out places that are not that don't have work done on yeah, them, like yeah. you know, to to highlight the fact that it isn't being done. That's yeah, the yeah. whole point, you know. But they're just trying to paint yeah. this picture of them as being like these are just like troublemakers, yeah. or they're just trying to interfere with yeah. the ordinary way of things. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then there's, I mean, you also have stuff that just kind of comes up then on a very kind of localized level and you you know so for example in Dublin 8 now there's um there's an eviction of uh 35 flats the Tatany house it's called I mean it's quite possibly illegal we don't really there's there's legislation to say that you can't mass evict tenants like that um but yeah so because I know there was a previous one in, in Dunleary um where they started trying to kind of move people out like two at a time that kind of thing and, and just whittle it down or whatever yeah. um so um but the the there's a loophole <laughs> which says that if it causes the causes the landlord undue uh hardship <laughs> um so i don't know how, what undue hardship is for a landlord that's got <laughs> 35 tenants or whatever yeah, it is yeah. the intense struggle for space in the capital city is directly linked to the depopulation of the countryside forcing people to move to the cities creates a dependent population where people cannot survive by their own means in his book, Climate Change as Class War, Matt Huber defines class in ecological terms. He says that the working class are separated from the land as a source of direct livelihood. We are a class alienated from nature and forced to survive via the market. This is not just the way things are naturally, as Ted's quick run through history showed us earlier. There's a long history of robbery that has brought us to this setup. As the process moves on, although some working people can claim their own patch of land, the market system favours the wealthy, the people who have access to capital funds and can outbid local families and workers. And, and the same with farmers, if they want to buy their neighbour's land, they won't, they'll give you, lend you money if you, want, if you were going to plant it, but they won't give it to you as, uh, for a farmer if you wanted to buy it as farming. So local people would be looking to buy sections of it, but there was no chance to get access to that land because it was being wholesale purchased by pension funds who had the money to... Yeah. So and it's the same issue. The same issue is pertinent now because it's it's private investors now, not the pension funds are still there, but um, they're still and still buying land. But they're getting grants from the state now, significant grants from the state, mm. to plant the land, to fence it, and then annual premia after that for fifteen years. So that is putting a, a top up on the value of the land, yeah. and and making it difficult to compete in the land market for local people. I shouldn't be giving out much about forestries, but because I did plant some of my own, and it was 20 years ago. But the, the told us this was to be for our, our pension. But we, we weren't told that we didn't have the, the carbon credits for it. 
and we and now we have to get planning permission to cut our trees and they have to be replanted in uh, inside the two years and you'll, there'll be no subsidies for me to plant to plant it the second time no you're right yes. it's a systemic problem you can't blame individuals or families for doing what's the most sensible survival strategy for they're them. trying to make a go of it like yeah, yeah. Like, and some of them making good money and making good living off it like and all that as well so you have to you have to kind of i suppose you know it's hard to ask people to step away from that too and you're not asking that's what, that's what i'm trying to say we visited a dairy farm a couple of months ago and he was just going to transition he had 120 conventional dairy cows right mm. and he was going to go up to 160 or something like that and instead he went organic okay and so he went from like 120 cows, like big input costs, fertilizer costs, feed costs, to having 80, now he's 80 cows, I think, no fertilizers, no feed. So he's, he's less work, less animals, so less, less you know, pressure on the, on the land, and easier to kind of manage that, that way, and less costs. So he's, he's probably making as good a living as he, as he was before, with a better quality of uh, life, yeah. arguably, because I mean, it's, it's tough work. It's tough work at the best times. And like the more animals you take on, the more capital you take on, the more investment you have, the more debt you have. As a farmer, that's, you know, you're chasing your tail for 20, 30 years trying yeah, to pay yeah. all that off. Like, and who wants to be stuck in that system? You, d you don't want to be trapped in that. So like, I mean, one of the things that we've forgotten about in Ireland is autonomy. Like farmers have forgotten about autonomy. Like mm. if you have a piece of land, potentially you have everything you need r right there. You know, you can get your shelter, you can get your food, you can get, you know, you have community, you've got... So, like, but, you know, there's loads of farmers in Ireland who don't even eat the, you know, food that they produce. Like, you know, don't eat the beef that they produce or, or, or drink the milk that goes out, you know, they're buying it little. Mm. And, like, I mean, that's, that's crazy. I'm sure if you go back even one generation or two generations, people would be shocked at that idea that, like, Again, farms are specialised to the point where they, you know, people are even eating the food that they produce. Yeah, like that's, yeah. that's, that's crazy. So like, those farmers need to look at themselves and say, well, is that, is that really the model that, you know, that I want to be stuck in or, or can I explore something else? Like, you know, it, it takes the right kind of... It takes, you need to have an open mind. And that's why I say the debate hasn't been helped by a very kind of conflictual sort of situation being set up by the farming lobbies, you know, with the environmental groups and... Farmers' organisations have a lot to answer for there because I think they've kind of stoked that rather mm. than rather than had a more moderate approach and said, "Look, we're going to have to change the way we do things. Let's look at other options. Let's think about you know the future. Let's think about our, you know your descendants and how to build a kind of something for them." Right. We're saying like you know burn it all up as best you can, get it, do whatever you can get away with, kind of thing. And like yeah. that's I think that's I think we've had enough of that actually in Ireland as a as an approach from farmers' organisations and. We're hoping with Teleview to bring something more constructive to the debate with just more constructive discussions about how, how we can actually do something positive. Looking at all these issues at once, we can see that those who are trapped in the monocrop model, be they farmers or foresters, have very little agency. By allowing the market to decide what gets produced, we are beholden to interests that often work against our own. While the monocrop planters are trapped, the rest of us lack access. Everyone is stuck and losing. I asked Eddie Mitchell what he thinks is needed to solve these contradictions. Well, the first thing is to try and hold on to our young people. You know, like this, this place has, has, has suffered from immigration. For, 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 like I, uh, my father and my grandfather 
would all have been in London. Like we have a great connection with, you know, New York, London, Australia, everywhere like that, which is a huge positive to us. But what we have to do is we have to somehow get our people back, enough, enough of our people back to try and, 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 and have make, make it this place sustain, you know, sustainable so that we can grow and thrive. You know what I mean? Mm. If, if, we can, if, we can, if we can hold on to our people, like there's plenty of good businesses around, you know, and the internet is probably helping us, you know, like COVID showed that, like everybody wants to go back and live in the country, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when we, when, when I was um, 16 or 17, um, I didn't need to leave, but we were so used to leaving, it was just a done thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and a lot of the people that are leaving now don't really need to leave, but, but there's, there's, there's such strong links and such good connections. People will go earn a few pound experience the world and come back but um we need we just need a, we need to be able to get them back like at the moment there's a massive problem in leitrim getting planning permission it's nearly impossible to get planning permission to build a house you know uh, and we have forestry um we were, we're at 19 percent of forestry cover you know and that's all sick most of it's sick as spruce you know yeah, Richard. so we, we 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 need to have um so now you you, you can see that you know, all the climate action stuff, we need to plant more trees and all that, you know. So we have to make sure that, that all those trees don't all get planted in Leitrim, that they get planted everywhere, you know what I mean? So we've got these major problems, we'll say, like, obviously gold mining um, is, 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 is a big threat, but that's a new threat, you know. Just being able to sustain our, our, our rural communities that are sort of under attack from the, from the forestry industry, that, that's important. And, and, and if we can't, we have to be able to solve our planning problems, you know, so that we can allow people to build in the countryside, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just to, 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 to keep our population, you know. Because it does feel like a bit of a sacrifice zone when you can't get planning permission, yet everybody can, can come in and exploit you, you know. And every country probably needs a sacrifice zone, you know. You, you, you just have to make sure it's not, <laughs> it's not where you are, you know. So people may not have to move due to lack of work, but many are forced to leave due to lack of housing. As the crisis deepens and intensifies, resistance to it grows. CATU, the Community Action Tenants Union, started around three years ago and now has almost 2,000 members nationwide. I'm a member of CATU and if you're experiencing difficulty with housing and you want to do something about it, you should seriously consider joining CATU. There's branches all over the country, so if you're curious, check out catuireland.org. I recently spoke to Enda, a committee member from the Dublin 3 branch of CATU. So much of what's going on in the world is that there's one individual that has all the power, uh, be it like one corporation or one landlord, and they have power and they have the narrative of power, as in they can, they can say, oh, this is how the world works, um, this is how things go, this is a foregone conclusion. And that's why we have evictions, and that's why we have housing crisis in the first place, that's why you have fracking. Um, it's because someone's personal interests, financial interests, are able to run roughshod over what is the collective good because the collective good has been divided into a lot of atomized individuals who feel they're, like they're alone. And that's what we're really interested in, in combating, is to make people feel like they're not alone, like they can't turn to their neighbors, like there is good in the world and there is power in the people. And if they get together, they can enact change and you know, drive that narrative and that change in perspective. And like, there's an Ursula Lagoon quote that I can't fully remember, 
but it's something about how like the, the revolution needs to be in you it needs to be in your heart if it's going to be anywhere yeah. uh, like that's what we want to impart onto our members in Katu is that kind of revolutionary spirit that idea that you can change things you the individual and the plural you um, or yees or yous <laughs> um, and it's yeah it's very important to let people know they're not alone and that once they're not alone they're stronger the, the revolutionary optimism I think is the the phrase I've heard before it's like the the, the antidote to the hopelessness exactly yeah uh, and that is that is a huge it's, it's an epidemic I think now of of hopelessness you know you it's very easy to if you're having a I mean even just having the conversation in the first place is rare enough but if you manage to have a conversation with someone about whatever issue it is I find anyway very quickly spirals to like to this hopeless place of uh, we're against this behemoth whether it's like the, the, the corporate landlords or even just individual landlords the landlords and the government the the, sh the sheer size of the corporations that are that have control over energy production and electricity production and all the rest of it. it's just very easy for it to spiral into like oh well there's lit there's nothing we can do in the face of this like it's it's pointless so yeah yeah that's a powerful message that yeah and like things are bad in the world but they've only gotten to where they are uh, because of people making certain decisions and taking certain actions and if we want to change how things are we need new decisions and new actions and and everything is changeable. There's no such thing as hopelessness if you bring the scale out big enough. Because yeah, okay, things are bad now, but there's no time limit on making things better. Mm. In the same way, there's no time limit on making things work. I mean, the revolution is just work you always have to do. There's no reaching utopia. There's always going to be um, struggles. There's always going to be someone fucking things up, uh, and there's always going to be have to, there's always have to, going to have to be fixing to do. Uh, and sometimes the fixing is very small and sometimes sea levels are rising and glaciers are melting and the air is getting difficult to breathe and things like that. It really feels overwhelming and people are saying, oh, we have 10 years to act to stop global warming. And yeah, that's a strict time that we do need to act. And some people think, feel like we've lost that fight already. Mm. I don't know if we have or not, uh, but even if we have, life still goes on and you have to consider there's always going to be a reason to say, ah, oh, to think, oh, it's, it's all shit or it's all going to shit. And you just need to give people some taste of small successes to fight back against that and some forum to be like, yeah, no, we're making a difference, even if it's just very local. You'll find links to the various campaign groups covered in this series on the Turning Earth blog. You'll find that, as well as links to the Patreon and other social media pages by going to linktree.com forward slash Turning Earth. Thanks again to Glushuk and to Dublin Digital Radio. And remember, if you want to support the podcast, please subscribe on Patreon patreon.com forward slash turning earth it's only two euros 50 a month or a five a month not a huge amount of money but it makes a big difference to this project if you can't afford to subscribe there's lots of other ways to help you could leave a review on itunes or whatever podcast app you use and please subscribe on youtube spotify whatever social media you use and really the most helpful thing you can do is recommend this to some friends spread the word in whatever way you can this is independent media it doesn't get heard unless you want it to get heard lastly if you want to ask any questions or if you think i got something wrong please email me at turningearthradio at gmail.com Slang of all.